Before we start, I just wanted to let you know that you can become a paid subscriber of LECA on Substack, Patreon or Apple Podcasts and you'll get access to exclusive content to hear and read. Subscriptions really help support LECA. So if you're in a position to do that and you'd like to, head to lekapodcast.com forward slash support to find out more. Welcome to the LECA Book Club. This month... Made in Taiwan by Clarissa Wei. In Made in Taiwan, Taipei-based journalist Clarissa Wei beautifully captures the food and spirit of this proud island nation and truly brings it to life on the page. The book is stunning. You'll hear more about the thought and consideration that Clarissa and her team put into how it looks as well as what it says later in this interview. And it examines the current state of Taiwanese food in incredible breadth and depth. For me, someone completely new to the food of the country, it's a beautiful and rich education. I wanted to give credit as much as possible to the people who gave me these recipes because, you know, even though I do talk about myself a little bit in there, I really hope it's not centered around myself. I really wanted this to be a work of journalism. It was such a pleasure to meet Clarissa via video chat and talk about this book, which involved an astonishing amount of research and recipe development. I'm a big fan of Clarissa's work as a journalist. The podcast series she made with Whetstone Radio Collective, Climate Cuisine, is one of my all-time favourite listens. And it was so interesting to hear how she approached this book, the subject of which is something hugely personal to her, but one which she wanted to approach journalistically and write as an act of documentation. We talked about how missing home through food sometimes takes unexpected shifting forms. Her culinary collaborator on the book, Ivy Chen, and why it was crucial that Made in Taiwan moved away from its original proposal as a quote-unquote cosy cookbook and became something deeply political. I began by asking Clarissa about how she first learned to cook. I think the first time I had to really cook for myself was when I was in college and I was in New York City and I had grown up in Los Angeles in a very Asian part of um, Southern California where I was really used to Asian food. And, you know, being in the middle of New York City, yeah, there's, you know, Chinese takeout, but I sort of miss like the flavors of home and home cooking. So I started off really simple, just getting noodles from the Asian market, maybe adding an egg, chicken broth, and it would build from that. And then really... It was just adulthood moving out on my own and starting to try different recipes. And now that I've been abroad for so long away from the States, I really miss, you know, American food. So at home, we make a lot of chili or we make a a lot of tacos or just things that we miss from home. But I know whenever I'm away from Asia, then I start missing, you know, noodles or braised pork belly over rice. So, um... I'm not a trained professional cook, but it just comes really from necessity. Yeah, I really liked the bit in the book where you talked about your Costco pilgrimage. Yeah. And like <laughs> that idea of like going somewhere to stock up. Because I think like, we, I don't know, I feel like that that conversation is maybe not always had. Like we often talk about like people 
who live in, I guess, the West, Mm -hmm. like cooking things that remind them of home. But I like the idea of like flipping that on its head and you going to Costco for bagels. That was a really nice story. Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting. And if you told me that I would be doing this, I would have laughed. (laughs) But you really do miss the flavors that you can't get. Um, Like I just miss having cheese (laughs) so much, but I never (laughs) ate it when I was living in California. Yeah, that's so funny. Was it your immediate family that you were going to for recipes or were there any sort of like other cookbooks or people that you were turning to when you were first learning to cook as kind of a young adult? No, I mean, I think when I first started cooking, it was also when I started my career as a food writer. So I got to Mm. meet a lot of chefs or a lot of home cooks and kind of see how they did it as well. I didn't necessarily turn to recipes. Um, At home, I eat very, very simply. It's only for work when I will start measuring things and follow recipes (laughs) and like try all the techniques and stuff. But again, at home, we use the Instant Pot a lot. We do a lot of book meal planning. There's really nothing super extravagant or technical about the way I cook on a day-to-day basis. (laughs) And so is that why you collaborated with um, with Ivy on this book? With A hundred percent. Again, I'm not a professionally trained cook, but I know how to develop a recipe. And it was just really important for me to work with someone who has that experience, especially in the context of Taiwanese food. I'm sure I could have figured out a lot of these recipes myself by, you know, Googling in Chinese, um, sort of reverse engineering things, but... There's a million ways to make one dish and I wanted it to be done right and I wanted it to reflect how the people in Taiwan cook today. And Ivy was like kind of, you know, how a lot of cookbook authors, they have like a mom or a grandma. Yeah, I don't yeah, have yeah. that. My mom is not an amazing cook. So Ivy was like, my cooking mom you know when we were doing the um photo shoot we all joked like she's like mama son or she's like the mother um (laughs) and I learned so much from her and this is what she does for work and I'm so glad I made that investment and you know signed her on because this book would not have been what it was without her it's really great that that kind of collaboration is so explicit as well, because I feel like that's something that a lot of cookbook authors do, but it's maybe just not acknowledged quite so kind of openly. Like there is somebody behind the scenes doing the technical work because it, it's like a really specific skill set, right? Like yeah. as, a, the, as a journalist or a food writer, you might not have. So yeah, it's it's clear like her influence on it. And it's amazing. Yeah, when I was in my early 20s, I was a little bit more hot-headed and I would be very upset when I saw cookbooks of you know writers who would go to a place and spend a week mm. there and then all of a sudden they're an expert and I knew it was, a whole, it was book. it's yeah. a whole book and that's great but I really knew that if I ever got the opportunity to do something like that even though I'm Taiwanese even though I live in Taiwan I wanted to give credit as much as possible to the people who gave me these recipes because this isn't, Mm. you know, even though I do talk about myself a little bit in there, I really hope it's not centered around myself. I really wanted this to be a work of journalism and for people to get to know the people of Taiwan. And with that, I wanted to give people credit because it's so easy not to give people credit because it's a completely different language and people here wouldn't have complained, but I did not want to be that person. Yeah, no, I think that absolutely comes across. Like, it is very much a work of journalism. I think the thing that struck me when I was reading it is just, like, the depth and breadth of 
the book. I mean, it's like an amazing, for someone like myself who doesn't necessarily know a lot about Taiwanese food, has never been to Taiwan. Like it's an amazing kind of insight all in one go of the dishes and the history. And I don't think you are centered in it, but it's also you're a way in for the reader, I guess, to, you know, access these stories and like learn about your dad's like staying up all yeah. night to watch baseball with his friends and then have his mum make breakfast in the morning. You know, like those stories are kind of what brings it to life. Like I felt like you really brought the country to life on the page, which is like not a very easy thing to do. <laughs> so yeah, I, it's clearly a huge I project. I appreciate <laughs> that. And I also made an attempt to put people's like Chinese names with the Chinese characters there. Yeah. So many yeah. times like I'm in a foreign country or especially in a with a language that I don't know. And then you just Google that person's name and they don't, they obviously don't show up on Google, right? But if you right. Google the, their names in Chinese, then their information will come up. And then, you know, if you're here in Taiwan and you really want to track some of these people down, you can do that yourself. And like, I'm surprised why that isn't the standard um, already. Is it laziness or... Yeah, that's so true. Um, so I kind of wanted to sneak that in. That does seem like such a simple thing. But I guess like people, I think there can be a real conservativeness around kind of cookbook writing. And like, I think there's cause there's a real, um, there's kind of been a small conversation in the UK recently about the idea of like italicizing mm, words right. that aren't in English. In, <laughs> so I guess it's kind of like, that's the same sort of thing, right? It's like, you don't need to make something look foreign. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it can just be part of the context as well. Right. Yeah. And in a globalized society, anyone can like travel to Taiwan immediately too. So we're no longer right. so removed. Um, so I think we should be pushing other food writers and food journalists to include as much information and like credit in the actual language as possible. Yeah. Was it a tricky thing to navigate? Because you talk about Taiwan being a multilingual nation. Was that something that was hard to navigate when you were kind of interviewing people and then... Um, I guess, undertaking the process of translating their recipes. Was that kind of challenging? Um, it's multilingual in the sense that the language that people use at home might be different, but Mandarin okay. is very much the the dominant language. So knowing okay. Mandarin, that was easy enough. If anything, it was like yeah. the Taiwanese dialects. I'm older generations only speak Taiwanese. I understand Taiwanese, right. but I can't speak it. But again, because I had such a wonderful team who, and they were all born and raised here, I had help. I was right. not alone. Would not have been able to do that um, without them. So you grew up in LA, went to college in New York. When did you move to Taiwan? Um, I kind of was going back and forth between the States and Asia um, since 2015. And then I got a full-time job in Hong Kong in 2018. And that was when I really settled in Asia. And my now husband, boyfriend at that time was in Taiwan. So we were doing long distance. And then we settled here full-time in 2020. But when most people hear 2020, they're like, that's not a lot of time. You've only been there for three years, but not really. Like I really spent a lot of time here since since 2015 and before that my parents would take me here every single year um, for winter vacation so I've always had a strong connection to the island and you know in 2020 decided hey I'm actually going to settle down here start a family and um, be here in Taiwan as a, a citizen and resident. Mm -hmm. Yeah okay that makes sense. I, can't, I wanted to ask you, but I don't want to dwell on this too much because I do really want to kind of talk about what's in the book yeah. as well. But um, I think there can be a little bit of a, 
like a kind of impression that cookbooks can be quite cozy. There's like almost a coziness or like an apoliticalness around mm. cookbooks. And like from the outset, this is like this is clear that it's very much not the case with your with your book. And even before it's been published, there's been quite a lot of very strong reactions to things that you've been posting online about it. Um, which I'm assuming are from people who haven't read the book. No, which is I guess it's a whole not out thing. yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess I just wanted to ask you whether you were braced for that sort of reaction to the book or whether it was a surprise. Oh, I mean, I pitched it as much. Um, I, actually, okay. the first round of pitching, it was more from that cozy angle that you were talking yeah. about. <laughs> um, and that was in 2020, right when COVID was starting and no yeah. one really got the urgency. I think some of the feedback was, oh, I already have an author on my list who ha- is of Taiwanese heritage. They weren't writing a book about Taiwan, but they were of Taiwanese heritage, conflict of interest. Um, and then by 2021, a series of things had happened. A, like mm. the world started to know more about the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. B, mm-hmm. there was a huge stop Asian hate movement in the United States. And then just this aware of coronavirus, more talk about Taiwan, China, and Hong Kong. And then I had revised my proposal to really embrace the urgency of the Taiwanese story Mm. as well. Being like, hey, if we don't talk about this, it might actually be too late in a couple of years Mm. time. And I immediately got placed a match with a publisher who understood that vision and that urgency and I'm really glad that I got to tell this story or that I was pushed to tell this story through this angle because, you know, while a cozy Taiwanese cookbook that you can curl up with by the fireplace would have been nice, um, we do live in a weird place. We are in a weird place here in Taiwan and are constantly right. dealing with existential threats, even though most people might not talk about it on a day-to-day basis. And food and politics is it's undeniably intertwined here, even though a lot of people and a lot of my critics say, why do you have to push them together? But you can't divorce them. So it was just a series of fortunate events and good timing um, that led to this book being sold and published. Yeah, yeah. I think in this case, I don't want to sound like I mean, like I mean cozy is like a negative thing. But I do also think the book is such like there's so much beautiful storytelling in it as well as that kind of like it is all part of the story so I think you could absolutely curl up with it Um, even though obviously some of the content is like very serious and like you say very urgent. How would you describe this book to somebody that hasn't read it? This book is a reflection of modern Taiwanese food as it is in Taiwan today. It includes a lot of history and context that you would not not get um, anywhere else. And what makes this book different from any other cookbook about Taiwanese food is it's the first time where there is a clear distinction of Taiwanese food as its own entity and not under the umbrella of Chinese cuisine. So I hope for it to be a comprehensive overview of Taiwanese food for people, but also a disclaimer that food is very personal and that it will differ by family and where you are in the world. But we try to be as comprehensive as we we could have been in the time and space constraints that we were given. Is that something that you're also expecting people to react to, that um, they think that you've done, you've written down recipes in a way that isn't 
you know kind of relevant to their family's account of it yeah especially with there's all this like gatekeeping and what authenticity is or why didn't you include this recipe or that recipe and sure that you can go on and on um but again that's Mm. why I tried to divide things by periods you know different historical Mm. periods and list down like I really sort of proved my work so I anticipated all the critiques because I've been writing about food and Asian food for you know over a decade so a lot of Mm. these critiques I've gotten before and I just sort of anticipated them and built them in the book so before people can say anything it's there already but as you've seen this is such a heated topic it triggers a lot of people and I know no matter what, yeah. I'm going to get hate for it. But that's fine. That's just a function of being Taiwanese these days. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, it's kind of sad that that's just like the accepted position that you have. But I guess there's an inevitability about that. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it's more motivating to, and it just goes to show how important these stories are if it creates mm. so much hate and controversy. Mm. Could you tell me about, some of the kind of people who are who feature in the book could you tell me about some of their stories and how you came to meet them and include their recipes in the book yeah so I going into this I wanted a very diverse group of people not just you know people whose families came here after 1949 which is kind of the Mm. dominant perspective in Taiwanese food and English media and so with that I sort of tapped into my reporting, you know, while I was writing this cookbook, this was when a lot of things were happening in the, in the political space in Taiwan. And I was shooting documentaries about cross-street tensions mm-hmm. and like warplanes coming over. And so through these assignments, I got to know a lot of people. And while I was there, I was like, hey, give me your recipe or tell me about your family's <laughs> recipe. And then I had a Rolodex of people I could cycle through, but also through my past reporting. Um, so it was A, me tapping into, you know, the people I was interviewing who were aware of tensions, but also past reporting and also being very conscious of I don't just want one perspective. I want people from all walks of life. So we have young people yeah. and older people and from whose families came from different immigration patterns. I was really lucky to have a researcher. I brought on a researcher who helped me, you know, get organized and talk to all of these people. And even if people did not give me their recipe per se, I wanted their perspective in it. And there are a couple recipes mm. like that. So like example, the ice cream burrito and the dessert section, that's not their recipe, but I did interview them and sort of got some context. And mm. with space constraints, I wasn't able to do that for every single dish, but as much as possible, I wanted to talk to a vendor or a chef on the ground and just get a little soundbite in of their voice and what this dish means to them and what makes it special. I love the the kind of context you gave around, um, I've forgotten their name, but the, the indigenous Taiwanese person mm-hmm. that you that you said you lived with for a month. Could you just tell me a little bit about them and the, like kind of what it was like learning about that? Yeah. I guess aspects of Taiwanese history. So I think a lot of people have heard of the WIF program, um, the Worldwide 
organization of I don't even know what the acronym is it's a program where you can sign up and then live on a farm and work with someone so Alice had put a listing up and she doesn't necessarily have a farm the jungle is her farm but she has a restaurant and this was in a period of my time where I was just kind of single and restless and did not know what to do and I thought hey going to live with this woman for a month sounds really fun and what we did is every morning we would go out in the jungle on the back of her, you know, with her pickup truck and just pick some vegetables. She never called it foraging. It was just like, let's just get some ingredients Mm. for the restaurant. And then we would work at her restaurant and then we would go home and she would tell me stories of her upbringing. Her mom was the last shaman of the tribe. Her dad um, remembers, you know, he he actually just passed away at like the age of 100 or something crazy. But he remembers like running in between tribes with like a torch like barefoot to deliver messages, which is so surreal. It's like from a different time. And I kind of just became this recorder when I was there and just try to document everything and remember everything. So I knew when I got this book, I wanted to dedicate a subchapter um, to her stories. Mm. But she's so inspirational and there's so many people in Taiwan like her. And did so the recipes that you included in that kind of that subchapter, were they ones that you remember making with her in the restaurant? Yeah, those are recipes that she made. So um, like the sausage... It's with beetle nut leaf, which is an ingredient that she Mm. keeps on pushing. And so that's the thing with the indigenous people here. They're not necessarily pushing ingredients that are indigenous to Taiwan because there's Mm. no market for that. But it's also ingredients that are that just grow really well here or were introduced before. So like the beetle nut leaf, Mm. that's really prominent in like Vietnamese cuisine or Thai cuisine. But here in Taiwan, people don't eat it. There's like a stigma around it because it's wrapped around the beetle nut. And that's kind of a a psychoactive ingredient that gets people high. Mm. But it's really nutritious and it grows wild, but people don't eat it. And so Alice has been on this campaign to promote it. So she like puts it in her sausage. Same with the pigeon pea. I have a recipe for pigeon pea stew that was actually introduced in Mm. the Japanese colonial era. And it's Mm. such a great ingredient when you're growing it on the farm because it helps enrich the soil. But the most majority of Taiwanese people don't cook with it. Um, It's used a lot in India and other parts of Asia. Mm. So I think just including that perspective and how Taiwanese food can be very different depending on who you're talking to um, was quite important to me. So I wanted to say to you that I absolutely loved the series that you made with Whetstone, Climate Cuisine. It's like one of my favourite ever podcasts. I oh, think that's amazing. really sweet. It was so great. Like it gave me such like a, a new perspective on, yeah, because, you know, in the UK, like we're very much for a long time, like for a long period of our history, we have imported like such a high percentage of what we eat. Like it's, we're a, we're a nation of imports, like for various reasons. So it's kind of really interesting to think about, I think from that perspective as well, like, because we have sort of a very weird understanding of like what our native food even is right. at this point, because we've taken so many aspects from different people and different different types of cooking, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I guess I wanted to ask you whether there was any sort of tension with writing a recipe book where you're like, you know, specific ingredients are quite important because you want the you want the recipes to be true to kind of the stories of Taiwan. But then, you know, this work that you've done, I guess, around like climate and the, you know, the kind of bad aspects of the mm. global food system. Was there any kind of tension there for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I see this more as a, a work where you where I am documenting what people eat here. Sure. And so yeah, I didn't I really and there's like not a lot of vegetarian recipes at all. There's it's very meat heavy. Really. So the the diet here is not sustainable, if you will. Okay. But you know, I, I did think about like supply chain because a lot of these like specialty ingredients mm. are imported in. But it was important. The goal of this book was to s- capture a snapshot of what Taiwanese food is now because that might change sure. later. And you even see it in how people are cooking. People aren't using these like ingredients that are very expensive or hard to get. They're taking shortcuts, mm. um, which is mm. probably more sustainable and better. There's this um, ingredient called an olive flounder. It's a, a dried um, flatfish, mm. and that forms the basis of a lot of the broth. But people don't really use it anymore. They'll just use like instant bouillon cubes or like fish cubes or kelp. But again, I approach this project very much just I want to document this before it goes away and how people choose to interpret that and tweak that into their own cooking. That's completely up to them. Um, my goal was again, to just, here's a snapshot. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense actually. And I think, yeah, I don't always view recipe books that way. And I think it makes a lot of sense to see it like that way. It's not just a kind of instruction manual. It is, um, yeah, a documentation. So yeah, that's really interesting. Are there any recipes in the book that are particularly meaningful to you? I'm aware that, you know, it's a huge book. There's so many recipes, but are there any that kind of really stand out for you? Um, the one that I always tell people and that I'm actually making right now in my instant pot is the <laughs> braised pork belly over rice. Just because it's so simple, but with the Taiwanese diaspora, there's a tendency to overcomplicate it. I think a lot of people mm. put in like a million spices and then they braise it to death and they'll add like all of these things. And when I was interviewing the vendor who makes it, he only puts four ingredients, water, sugar, wow. soy sauce and shallots. I added a little bit more because his secret is using like the leftover braising liquid that they've been using for three generations. Sure. <laughs> so I added a little like rice wine and garlic for complexity. So what really stood out is like how simple a lot of these flavor profiles are and not to overcomplicate mm. things. And with Taiwanese food, what I realize is chefs exercise a lot of restraint in terms of seasoning. Mm. And that was something I really struggled with because I'm American and we tend to oversalt things and when mm. I brought on a bunch of recipe testers as volunteers, uh, a lot of the feedback was uh, everything could use a couple grains of salt. But then Ivy's <laughs> like, but we don't eat like that here in Taiwan. Like everything is very not salty. And I kind of had to be the middle ground where I was like, OK, let's maybe add a little bit of salt, but not too much. Um, basically, that was a, a huge lesson for me that Taiwanese food is very minimal focus on yeah. just the original flavor of the ingredient. So if you source like a really beautiful pork belly, you won't need that extra soy sauce or salt or all those spices. And it was a really enlightening lesson for me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But I like so that's interesting that you say that things yeah, things are kind of like seasoned sparingly, but you also talk about kind of the um complicated relationship Taiwan has with sugar. Oh yeah, people um, <laughs> so like things are seasoned sparingly, but with a lot of sugar, which yeah. again is like for someone who grew up in the West, it's very confusing at times. Um, mm. And things have just gotten sweeter and sweeter. 
But again, <laughs> like that was kind of an internal conflict I had as someone writing a cookbook. You know, it's like how true do I want to be to like the flavors here? And again, I just went back to, you know, people can read this recipe, taste like I really encourage people to just use their taste buds. If it's too sweet, don't like don't put that much sugar. If it's not salty yeah. enough, add more salt. But these flavors were guided by Ivy's <laughs> flavor profile, who has been here for sure. so long and yeah. wanted to keep it like that. Why do you think there is such like a leading towards sweetness, I guess? I think that's that's probably a hard question to answer. But I just, yeah, I find it really interesting. Yeah, I mean, most of it is historical. When we were colonized by the Japanese, Taiwan was the only place where they could have sugarcane plantations. So mm, it just became a really okay. huge part of our economy. I think it was like two thirds of the population they were sugarcane farmers, so it just became oh associated God. with wealth and progress. Yeah, yeah, like you can buy all of these different types of sugar in the the store, but there's yeah, I can't find coarse sea salt anywhere. I just find like fine sea salt. <laughs> it's really fascinating what people prioritize here. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> there's a few sort of, I guess, similar examples where um, a colonial power or a, I guess, a global power has brought an ingredient or popularized an ingredient. Because the story of kind of all American wheat yeah. is super interesting as well. So the US bringing over, they ex- exported wheat, but then it was a whole promotional campaign. I'm sort of forgetting. Yeah, so so with the wheat, this it's the US had this program and it wasn't just with Taiwan. It was in the Cold War. They wanted to win over the favor of a lot of countries and bring them away from communism. So Mm. um, Taiwan just got um, a billions of dollars of aid, but we also just got a surplus of wheat because the U.S. had produced a lot. And it was a way to get Taiwan to be pro-U.S. versus being more sympathetic towards, say, communist causes. And even to Mm -hmm. today, most of our wheat is American. And that was something I was really confused about when I was recipe developing, because when I first started, I was like, this recipe is not working with my American brand of flour. And why isn't it working? And then when you Google it online, actually, most sources say it's because Chinese wheat has a lower protein content. And something about that did not sit right with me because I was like, we don't have Chinese wheat. Like, we don't communicate with China like that. Where is this coming from? So I, like, messaged so many food bloggers and bakers (laughs) and eventually got a hold of this guy who has a Chinese blog called, like, Brian Cuisine. And he teaches Taiwanese people how to make Western sourdough breads and like baguettes and stuff. Yeah. And he was like, (laughs) oh, yeah, I mean, you're completely right. The protein level of wheat in Taiwan and America is exactly the same. The difference (laughs) is how they mill it and the additives that they use. And so the, the water ratio will differ a little bit. But yeah, there was a point where like Ivy and I had packets of like American flour and Taiwanese flour and we were looking at the protein content and it was the exact same. (laughs) And I like could not figure it out. So there's a lot of misinformation about like where our ingredients come from or the origins of it. And this was this project really helped me debunk a lot of these um, myths. Yeah. And that's something that's so hard to unpick, right? Because unless you can find someone who knows, like, you can't go into a mill and like know exactly what they're doing. And yeah, it's so complicated. Again, I guess it's that like global supply chain thing. But yeah, yeah, it's all very opaque. And even to this day, if you tell me like how to change the water ratio, I'm like, I'm not really sure. I just 
our solution was to my parents just brought home brought bags of American wheat for me and then Ivy and I just <laughs> tested it from scratch. It's not like there's a I have a conversion formula in my brain. Right, right. Yeah, that's so funny. I loved how you talked about Taiwanese kitchens and you said they were either charming or janky depending on your perspective. Yeah. Can you tell me about the main things that characterize Taiwanese kitchens for you? Yeah, I mean, I current um, moving now because it's actually a little bit inconvenient when you're a cookbook author. But uh, like sure. I live on a 6-4 walk up and I have a, a gas tank that I have to like I have to call someone and they bring over a gas tank, a propane tank to replace to connect to my stove every time we run yeah. out of gas. There's no hot water in the kitchen. We don't have a dishwasher. Wow. Um most kitchens, all kitchens don't come with ovens, so we use a toaster oven. It's really really hot in there. There's no air conditioning. Um it is very very minimalistic <laughs> and we just made do but again the beauty of Taiwanese food is you don't have all of these fancy gadgets all you need yeah. is a stove and a wok and what was really kind of difficult for me to first adjust to is the fire here when you turn on the stove is like a rocket fuel engine and that like really affected the recipes too cuz something that would yeah. take you know Two minutes, like ten minutes in the states, would take two minutes here. I would burn things easily here, and just sort of figuring out the nuances <laughs> between the Western kitchen and the Taiwanese kitchen was very difficult for me. But I, yeah. I am moving soon, and hopefully, we'll have a better setup. But if anything, it just taught me that you don't need a lot to cook a great meal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I really enjoyed the like little anecdote about going to a, like a store and talking to someone about maybe replacing your Taiwanese stove with an American yeah. and kind of being met with shock he, horror. He was because so I guess, offended. Like, the- <laughs> yeah, he was just like, well, "Do you want food with no flavor? Like the high flame is what gives our food flavor." And and fair enough, but it's really difficult to time things, and uh, that's a cultural mm. thing too in the West. When we get recipes, we really Really want precision, timing, exact measurements, and he, like here in Taiwan, like people do not think like that. You know, it's very intuitive. Mm. And that must be a real. That's like a process of translation when you're writing a cookbook, right? Because people kind of have this expectation of, especially if it's something they haven't cooked before or even eaten before, maybe they just need to know what to look for. I guess. Yeah, and then even with Ivy, like she didn't understand why I wanted everything to the teaspoon or to the gram. And eventually she adjusted and like we would like poke fun of each other um, because of it. But, it, you know, she's a fast learner and eventually we, we got the hang of things. But it is I, I do think it is important to measure things and time things, especially when you are writing a cookbook, because th- this is the only way you can transmit recipes across cultures and across borders. And I think mm. people sort of make fun of maybe me or us for being so finicky with our little spoons um, but <laughs> it is an act again of preservation and how better else mm. to do it than to approach it more scientifically and get the measurements and the timing down to a t yeah totally you know you talked about um 
you know, you eat quite simply at home, you cook quite simply. Has the process of developing these recipes in the book, has it changed how you cook at home? Are there things now that maybe you didn't cook before, but you would now? Uh, No, if anything, I just (laughs) don't really want to eat Taiwanese food all that much anymore (laughs) because it's just so much oversaturation of Taiwanese food and it's made me appreciate Western food even more. And then if like if you go through the recipes, a lot of them are technically quite difficult, which is mm. something that is quite that I l- learned through this process. You know, some of these street food dishes, you look at it and it's like, oh, that should be easy. But there's a lot of prep involves and a lot of finicky things and a lot of technique that we don't use in the West. Um, and so mm. for every recipe, it wasn't like I could prep it beforehand a lot of it I had to do the day of and it was exhausting and that's kind of made me value like the the art of bulk meal planning and cooking in bulk and simple quick 15 minute recipes which this book is not this book does not I mean there's like a the beer food section right or a family style where you can quickly stir fry things but most things are very intensive and take a lot of time and it just made me appreciate the other side (laughs) yeah yeah that's so true I think that's it's hard isn't it because obviously you want people to be able to try things maybe if they don't have the opportunity to go to the country themselves but then even something like the the fried dough sticks the the kind of breakfast um uh dough sticks I can't remember the name in the book but that is, you know, there's such like an elaborate process yeah. to kind of like shaping them. And if you're doing that, like somebody who's done that their whole life can probably do it in a second. Exactly. But it's really hard to translate that. And if anything, I hope people can read this book and come away feeling that there should be more valued assigned to Asian food than it it is currently in the West. You know, there's this stereotype that yeah. Asian food is cheap, takeout, unhealthy. Totally, yeah. But it is very step like ingredient time intensive um and it really makes me yeah it's so complex and it really makes me appreciate the vendors and learning how complex these things were made me want to write it down even more because this stuff does not exist in english Something that's fun for a lot of people is I included just photography notes throughout the book. Um, Mm. My food stylists are really good at putting in Easter eggs throughout. Um, We worked with museums who donated or lent us their pieces. And so if you flip through the book and you look at the photography notes, you'll notice little tidbits. And I'll say, you know, this plate came from this era and why they use this utensil. And I hope it's not just informative in the text, but the, the photos can tell you a little bit more about Taiwan as well. So that's the fun thing that we baked into the book that most people won't be aware of until they get their physical copy. Yeah, that's so cool. And there was there was kind of personal aspects to that as well. Like they kind of acknowledged when the stylist had brought a, a table from yeah. like their family or something. And it was really cool. Again, that's something I think you don't see very much. Like the, the pictures are often just sort of a set for the food. So it's really nice to get that that extra bit of context. And that's amazing that you had museum pieces. That's so Yeah, cool. my stylist and photographer, they approach every dish like a scene. And every chapter, like a small little movie film, if you will. So if you actually look through each chapter, every chapter has a different light setting. So the night market one is like very warm. (laughs) So you'll see all the pictures are very warm. The family style is more bright pastel colors. And so that was, they had their foundation and then they had their props that they would put in. And so... 
I think I would say like 90% of these dishes, these props aren't just like random things they found. It's like they use this yeah. prop because this is how the plate that we would eat with at home or this is what you would see at the night market. It's very purposeful. It's very scenic. And I did not ask them to do that. They just did that <laughs> by themselves. <laughs> you just had a great yeah, team. Yeah, I just had an yeah. amazing team. And it's incredible that <laughs> they did that. And I learned so much from the process. Yeah, that's so cool. I'm going to go right back through the book now and like look yeah, at Yeah, just look at the lighting. lighting. The lighting is so <laughs> and then every corner too. I think each photograph would take like up to 2 hours and cuz she was looking oh at like God. the corners of each picture to make sure it was perfect. So just the framing was very purposeful. I think that's why it feels like such a I use the word comprehensive and I think you never want to claim something is definitive, but I think comprehensive is a very accurate yeah. term to describe this book. And it's not only comprehensive, but it is beautiful. Like, it's such a beautiful book. And having that level of detail in it, I think, is what gives it that, like, amazing texture as well as, like, your writing. So, yeah, it's honestly, like, it's a fantastic book. So congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for reading it and flipping through it, too. I appreciate that. Lekka is hosted and produced by me, Lucy Dearlove. Thanks to my guest on the Lekka Book Club this month, Clarissa Wei. Made in Taiwan is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. As part of the monthly Lekka Book Club, I will be writing on the book over on the Lekka Substack and Patreon. Have you been cooking from it? Have you been reading it? Have you noticed the light settings? Come and chat about that or your favourite recipes in the comments or tag me on Instagram when you read it or post dishes. I'd love to see them. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Before I go, one more reminder that you can also sign up as a paid subscriber to support Lekker on Apple Podcasts, Patreon, and also now on Substack. Links are in the show notes. And to any paid subscribers who are listening here, thank you so much for your continued support. The new subscriber only series begins this week. It's been slightly delayed as I was finishing Good Bread. So thanks to all subscribers for their patience. This new one is going to be a bit of a meandering look at something that occupies a large space in my brain at all times, and that is food packaging. The series is called Out of the Box, and here's a little clip of what you can expect from some of these episodes. Here is Shohini Banerjee, aka Smoke and Lime, who is going to be talking about the condiments she makes and the cooking she does and how it's packaged and approached. Thanks for listening. For me, actually, it goes back to, um, and I'd love to mention this, there's a concept of um, this, it's like a corner shop in Kolkata where I come from. It is, um, they're called mudir dokan. Um, so dokan means shop and mudi means a person who provides like necessities. So these shops, they're in every single neighborhood, minimum like 15 steps from your house or something. There's so many of them and they stock all your necessities, but they kind of give it to you in your containers or plates or bowls or whatever. So you can go and ask for lentils or rice. And there's a person who sits at the front of the shop, everything's behind them and you ask them for what you need. And it is a basic shop, so you can't get fancy mm. things, but you can get, you know, like your eggs, your rice, your lentils, your beans, maybe butter, oils, and like some snacks and that's about it. But they don't have any packaging. There's no branding on anything. Mm. And they're the old school shops in Kolkata, mm. where I come from. Actually, a lot of India as well. And they're kind of dying out at the moment because of supermarkets. 